The Ascension doesn't get a lot of theological press these days, and the reason is fairly obvious. The cosmology doesn't persuade, not even a little bit. So without that concept of heaven up there somewhere, ascending just isn't going anywhere. But the feast can draw attention to an important shift, even if it's not quite a geographical shift. The shift is from Jesus' disciples having a very concrete experience of Jesus' bodily presence to having an experience that is harder to put one's finger on. In a sense, the shift began with the resurrection, where those who knew Jesus best, like Mary Magdalene in the second reading, or the disciples on the way to Emmaus in the music we just heard, the people who knew Jesus best didn't always recognize immediately the resurrected Jesus. It was Jesus. He was real. He was really real. But it was a bit weird, too. And faith had something to do with whether you got it or not. But the shift didn't end there. Even that odd sense of the presence of Jesus' resurrected body, well, that gave way to something less specific less local, less physical. And Ascension Day is a marker for that shift. The shift continues, of course, with Pentecost, a shift emphasized in John's Gospel especially, where we read that Jesus insisted that he had to depart so that the Holy Spirit could be sent. To put it another way, Jesus had to be really absent in some way so that he could be really present in another way something tantalizingly symbolized in Jesus' statement to Mary Magdalene in the garden, touch me not, or better translation, don't cling to me because I haven't ascended yet. There's a challenging interplay here between presence and absence. The ascension allows us to say at least two things, two things at once. One, it affirms that Jesus' humanity, his body, his embodiedness, is still part of him and has been embraced in Trinitarian life. Jesus' humanity was not a chrysalis, a cocoon, or even a mannequin to be left behind. Any experience that you or I or anybody else ever has of Jesus is always an experience of a fully human, fully divine person. There is no other Jesus. If he is present to us in any way whatsoever, He is present in a human way. You cannot separate his humanity from his divinity even now, even if it's a bit hard for us to get our heads around it. That's what the gospel writers were at pains to say in all these odd stories of the resurrection appearances. The second thing affirmed by the Ascension is that he's not physically present anymore. Despite the promise in Matthew's gospel that he would be with us till the end of time, That's the challenge, isn't it? How can he be humanly with us without being physically with us? Theologically, this has been addressed in the past by denying that he is present locally, but present nonetheless. Or by emphasizing that he's present in a colony of Pauline way as a spiritual body, but we're not quite sure what a spiritual body really is. And such talk involves all kinds of unverifiable metaphysical assumptions But the problem for Christians isn't primarily metaphysical. The 
problem is how do we interpret our experience of Jesus? And my sense is that we have to start with religious experience itself. Theology is, after all, a reflection on religious experience and not a replacement for it. Theology is our way of trying to make sense of religious experience, not only our, our own, but the history of religious experience. And the tables ought never to be turned. We ought not to put theology first and then to try to fit, it, or fit our experience of God into our theology. For instance, many of us do experience some sort of presence in the Eucharist. We feel the real, but oddly only partial, fulfillment of Jesus' promise to be with us until the end of time, or to be with us whenever, whenever we are gathered in his name. Something rings true when we read those, those promises in the Gospel. But the presence we experience also includes a not-yetness, what is called an eschatological element, an acknowledgement of some sort of absence at the same time. It's actually this sort of absence that allows the Eucharist to remain a sacrament, to remain a sign, to put beyond itself, which is the critique of transubstantiation, for those of you who know all this stuff, in the Church of England's 39 Articles. And that critique is perhaps most valid because it insists that a doctrine of real presence needs to be balanced by some acknowledgement of some sort of real absence at the same time. Getting back to experience, though, it also seems that such a real presence, whether it be in the sacrament or in prayer or that moment in life where you just feel God in breaking into your experience, well, that experience is not just real, but it's real in a way that cuts across ordinary definitions of reality. Such experiences are not indistinct, woolly, spiritualized somethings or other. No, part and parcel of the experience is the eye-opening or the heart-opening sense that it is really Jesus whom we encounter. It is really him, but we encounter him in terms of entering into a relationship that is not yet completed or consummated. It's never the last word. The experience, sometimes lasting just a fraction of a second, is an invitation, an experience that requires some sort of response from us, an amen to a process, to a concrete daily following of him, a following that involves living a life rather than being present to a single moment or clinging on to a single moment. The amen or the yes that we say at communion is the beginning, not the end. It's a starting point, not where we end up. It's almost as though we're not permitted to gaze into Jesus' eye the way the first disciples did. We're invited instead to walk alongside him, to share his point of view, to put on his mind, to enter gradually, very, very gradually, into the fullness of his presence, which is the life that he lives with his Father, which is perhaps why he had to leave us physically, to enable space for that. And it may be why we continue to celebrate the Ascension. Despite our best efforts, Jesus refused to be made into a guru, even if the word didn't exist back then. He refused ever to be put on a pedestal. When he was called good master, when he was asked, good master, what must I do to attain eternal life? He wouldn't even let somebody call him good. And that's incredible. What he seems to have wanted 
is for his disciples to be filled with the same Holy Spirit who filled him at his baptism. He wanted his disciples to be as passionate as he was and still is about doing the will of his Father. He wanted to empty himself so that the glory of his Father would be revealed, not so that he would be revealed. And he emptied himself not just in a spiritual fashion, but in an utterly physical, bodily fashion. He did not cling to this life, but really did let it go, not just at the crucifixion, but even in the ascension. He made room for the Holy Spirit by being absent in some way, so that the Spirit he shared with the Father, the divine life he shares with the Father, that very same Spirit could be shared with us. That might have sounded clear to you, but it's not at all clear to me. I find it very, very challenging. Part of me would much prefer to have a chummy sort of relationship with Jesus. I'd like to have an older brother sort of discipleship. I even joined the society or the company of Jesus for 13 years, trying precisely to be a follower of Jesus in a very practical, concrete way. But as important as it is to get uh, through, to have that sort of getting to know Jesus well phase, there is actually a further, more grown-up phase to discipleship. It's a phase where well-meaning, sincere, and quite wonderful copycat discipleship has to give way to a much more demanding challenge of trying to discern how to live in harmony with that Holy Spirit that he's given us. How do we discover in every age what concrete discipleship entails in a newly complicated way? In fact, you can't look back for that. You have to look forward to that with the help of the Holy Spirit. Strange as it may seem, Jesus evidently trusted us to get on with it because he knew somehow that if we truly received the same spirit he received, we would follow where he led. 